You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Like Dale mentioned, my name's Andrew. I'm the student pastor. It's good to be here with you this morning. Now, I've really enjoyed getting to speak with you the last few weeks in this series. It's been fun to share some stories about my life and to get to talk to you all about a generation that I'm, I'm really investing in. So I want to keep the train rolling this morning. It's exciting to, to continue the series with you all as well. Now, I thought it'd be fun to share with you one of my newer personal heroes. Last year, I read a book about a man who really challenged and inspired me in my relationship with God, with his commitment to God and his message. His name was Sundar Singh. He was born in the late 1800s in India. He grew up as a Sikh, and when he was about 14, he had a pretty radical conversion. He decided to follow Jesus, and from that moment forward, even as a 14-year-old, he, he gave his life to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with his with his culture. He wanted to take the good news of Jesus to India. And one thing he realized early on was that Indians would only follow Christ if they were met, if they were reached in an Indian way. So the way that he organized his life, he decided to become uh, or dress like a holy man where he would live a simple life. He would walk around the countryside. People would approach him about how to know about God, what they're supposed to do, expecting wisdom from God. He gave it to them. What he gave them was Jesus. And so in his life, he got to take the, the gospel to southern India and northern India and Tibet. He really challenged me because he put his faith in action, and he saw God change a lot of hearts along the way. Some credit him with a pretty major uh, radical start of the church in India uh, in the, the last 150 years. And so I think Singh, he really took God seriously when he said that we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. And he used his life to take that message to his own culture. He really lived out, I think, our theme verse for this series. Now, you'll notice this card around you. We've been giving these out at each of the message series we've done so far with Gen Z. I encourage you, if you don't have this card already, we have several around. Go ahead and take that home. It's yours. On the back, it has our theme verse for the series that we're trying to memorize together. It's Romans 1.16, and it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And we're looking right now at Generation Z, because like many heroes of the faith, we want to take the message of the gospel into the future. It's not just a message for us. It's a message that God wants us to take to all people into the future. It's the same message it's a different audience. So I want to recap a little bit about who this audience is, remind us who Gen Z is. It is people alive today, aged 10 to 25. They were born between 97 and 2012. And we're taking a look at this generation specifically because there has been a massive change that has happened in their life. This generation is officially the first post-Christian generation in the United States. And what that means is that they are a spiritual blank slate. They don't have a history with the church. They don't know very much about who God is and what he's done. They've grown up largely outside of the church. This is a, a pretty massive shift for a generation to have grown up in. The second thing we looked at previously was that Gen Z has come of age in the digital age. The technology has always been available to them, and it's actually shaped how they view the world, how they interact with each other, and how they interact with 
uh, information. It's been a big deal, and it's really shaped a generation and how they live. And then last week, we looked at how Gen Z has a different definition of truth. Basically, and for practical purposes, they've redefined the word truth. They believe that it is a personal preference or an opinion, and it's possibly unknowable. So they've redefined truth as opinion. But one thing that isn't different is that regardless of generation, all of us want to lead successful lives. I, you know, I haven't met too many people that want to live insignificant lives or like have more pain than what is necessarily. They don't want to have especially painful lives, right? But for many, that's actually where the similarities end because we have a major difference in how we see the world. Our perspective on the world is very different. And the way that we view the world, I mean, it's the foundation for everything that we believe and everything that we do. I mean, it's how we define success. It's how we view what right and wrong is. It's how we build our lives. We build foundations based on how we view the world. So the questions that we're going to be looking at today, really, what is the best foundation for a life? How do I build a life? And we're actually looking at two opposing answers to that question that are in our culture today. So the first foundation that many are building their life on is themselves. It's me. It's a me-centered, self-focused foundation for life. Now, the technical term for this view of the world, it's called humanism. In, in the last hundred years, it's an idea that has come about and been brought into the academic world. Francis Schaeffer, a 20th century Christian theologian and thinker, defined it this way. He says, it's the worldview where man is the measure of all things. Basically, humans are on the top of the pile. We have the ultimate authority. They don't believe that there is any supernatural, so God is not in the picture. The general idea is that you have one life and then nothing, so go live it to the full. In 1933, the Humanist Manifesto was signed, and the American Humanist Association was born pretty soon after, and I think that their catchphrase summarizes this worldview really well. The catchphrase for the American Humanist Association is, good without a God. The idea was labeled modern or secular humanism, and it was brought into the mainstream of academic thought about 100 years ago. But making a life all about us is not a new idea. So how did we end up in a place where this is a major theme in culture? Well, for most of human history, I think God was the only mainstream idea about how the world came to be, where we came from. He was the only explanation. And that began to change in 1859 when Charles Darwin published his book, Origin of Species. For the first time, what had been obvious to everyone was now in question. What was offered was an alternative origin for people without God. And since then, the masses have gradually shifted their allegiance. They've gone from a God-centered view of the world to a human-centered view of the world. And this, I mean, this is really where we find ourselves today. We see this all the time. We're in a culture where God has been removed from the picture, and people have really been put in center stage. This is a worldview that has, on a large scale, impacted Gen Z. And here's my question for this foundation. If we are all that there is, how do you determine, ultimately, what is right and wrong? If mankind is the measure then what's the highest human authority? What's the highest human power? So many people have thought to answer this question in different ways. For some, they're like, oh, it's just a bunch of humans. Society, that's where we look for our morals, for what is right and wrong. 
many building on this foundation, they end up looking to the general morals accepted by their peer group or their friends. This generation is more globally connected. They do understand a little more about how their decisions impact other people and other cultures. But practically, whatever is the most popular opinion on right or wrong or the one with the loudest voice, that's the one that's most regularly adopted. But even if you're looking at society, at the end of the day, with this view of the world, my moral foundation is me. I choose. I am the highest human power. I get to choose what's right and wrong. Don't take my word for it. The popular humanist website explains the humanist ethic this way. I want to read a quote from their website. It says, Humanists believe that the origins of our moral capacities lie inside human beings and our evolution as social animals. They believe that when deciding how to act, we should use reason and empathy, considering the consequences of our actions and the likely impact on other people and animals. Now, when I read this, all I see is... At the end of the day, it's up to me, right? Who determines the reasonableness of my decision? Well, it's me. Who determines how much empathy and who I direct it towards? I mean, it's me, right? Who considers the consequences of my actions? Well, it's still me at the end of the day. But what if I'm a selfish jerk or a serial killer or an idiot, right? That's a pretty shaky foundation to build a life on. And what this has done for Gen Z, it's created a pragmatic generation. Basically, their thought is if your strategy works and doesn't hurt too many people, however many that is to you, then go ahead. A great example of this is Gen Z's view on the morality of lying. There was a study done where they said, hey, Gen Z, do you believe that lying is morally wrong? Only 34% of Gen Z believe that lying is morally wrong. Let me rephrase that. 66% believe that lying is morally acceptable across the board. That's two-thirds. Why? Well, I mean, white lies don't kill anyone, right? And it seems like lying is life's cheat code to get what you want right now. You don't worry about the consequences until later. If it works, I can do it. You know, I'd like to think that it was just Gen Z that had that view of the world. But this reminds me of a story from when I was in high school. For Christmas, I was given a Nintendo DS. Uh, it's the original one. For the older crowd, it's a Game Boy on steroids. For Gen Z, you probably know what it is, but it's, just, it's a really lame version of a Switch, right? So <laughs> that was my Nintendo DS. I thought it was so cool, and so I asked for it for Christmas. And I thought it'd be cool until I remembered, like, I'm terrible at video games, and I'm so extroverted that I just, I just stopped playing them after about 10 minutes. Something cool happens, and I look around, and no one's there. I'm like... Oh, no. Okay, cool. Well, I'll just put this away. So I got that for Christmas. In the, and in the summer, well past the 30-day return window, they came out with the first iPod Touch. You know, the iPhone that you couldn't call with? You see a picture behind me? I wanted one so bad. Unfortunately, I didn't have the $300 or whatever it was to buy the thing. A girl I was dating at the time, she had a little brother who had just been given the exact same Nintendo DS, same color and everything. And so... I took his box and the stickers from his and swapped them with mine. I took his receipt and I returned it. I swapped it for the iPod. I wanted something and I didn't mind lying to get what I wanted, just as long as the person I was ripping off was a large corporation that could handle it, you know? <laughs> and even though I got away with it, I felt terrible. I felt so bad. And a week later, to add insult to injury, 
I slammed it in a car door. It didn't break. It was bent, forever reminding me of my sin. Anytime I used it, I was like, yep, that happened. Thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus. You know, it was, I felt so bad. God was never a factor in that decision. Everything about that was about me. I was the one that thought I was in the right. And looking back, it's really scary how that me-centered thinking, it just can invade our daily lives. And this is the environment that Gen Z has been steeped in. It's what they've grown up in, being saturated in that worldview from birth. It's had some ramifications. That's what I want to look at now, the ramifications for Gen Z. Now, as Christ followers, we understand that God is real. We were created to know him. He is the answer for the longing of our hearts. He is our source of peace and comfort. But for Gen Z, God is not a factor in their lives and how they decide to, to live. And the absence of God in their life, it really does create a spiritual void. It makes a vacuum. And since God is not real to them, he's not where they turn for help and for healing. The spiritual vacuum wants to be filled, so they turn to counterfeit gods to ease their dissatisfaction with life. These are typically experiences that they're trying to have to fill the void. And the first one is they're trying to, to numb. They're, they're numbing. The goal is to just fill the void and forget how unfulfilling life is. They want to cope or survive. That's the goal. So they turn to what many people turn to, entertainment. They turn to video games, phones, social media. A couple weeks ago, I shared a statistic that uh, since 2019, on average, young people spend eight and a half hours or more on screen time every day for entertainment, not to be used with school, just for entertainment. And this is actually causing screen addiction for many young people, and they know it. They want to stop, but they can't. I've talked to several students who have really struggled with their phones, but it's such a part of their life that they can't get away from it. So they turn to entertainment. That's a huge thing that they use to numb um, having to face the difficulties in life. If something's going bad, just as soon as I can get back to my phone and I can forget about it, the better, right? There's also substance abuse. They use that to numb. Drugs and alcohol are honestly pretty easy to come by nowadays. And with a computer in their pocket, so is pornography. And then if, if that doesn't work, then they focus on making money. Maybe if I make enough money and I'm successful, that'll somehow fill the spiritual void. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't that how everybody's always done it? And yeah, I mean, you're right, for sure. That's the point. Gen Z is no different. I mean, maybe the technology that they're using is a different way of doing it, but, but Gen Z is really no different in that regard. Like many before them, they're trying to numb the pain that life brings or avoid it. They don't want to think about it. However, there is a really unexpected ramification of the spiritual void for Gen Z that you need to know about. There's a trend to dabble with the occult. Now, the occult, it's the supernatural, mystical, or like magical beliefs, practices, or phenomenon. Like think demons, witchcraft, pagan rituals, ghosts, paranormal, ghost hunting, that kind of thing. And if this seems to contradict what I said earlier about them not believing in the supernatural, yeah, you're right. <laughs> this, this generation is actually fine holding contradictory viewpoints at the same time. They don't ever have to mix, and so they don't think about how their whole worldview affects itself. They might not even realize that they're doing it. They can't deny the emptiness inside. They don't believe that God is real, so they don't believe the occult is dangerous. So they jump in headfirst. The dabbling, it starts as a fascination and probably an innocent curiosity. 
maybe they watched a bunch of scary, gory movies and thought it would be fun to ghost hunt. They go out with their friends at a sleepover to go look for ghosts in their backyard. Like, starts off as just a fascination at the beginning. Maybe they were introduced to the dark side of sleepover games when a friend brought out a Ouija board. Those are still pretty popular. But they don't stop at talking about it or thinking about it or sharing ghost stories. Gen Z gives it a try. I think the greatest example of this within the last five to seven years has been the Charlie Charlie Challenge. Its popularity peaked in 2015. It's a game where people invite a demon named Charlie to come and answer their yes or no questions. All you need to do is have a piece of paper and two pencils to play. And, you know, they ask questions like, would Johnny go to prom with me? Will I be president someday? But it can get as dark as, will I die tonight? Are you going to kill me? Millions of hits on Instagram and YouTube devoted to the Charlie Charlie Challenge. And it was a really popular sleepover game to play, and I'm sure it's still played to this day. The danger is that Gen Z doesn't believe that demons are real. So they're very flippant about asking one to come out and play. At the beginning, it just seems like fun and harmless. But when they begin to dabble with the occult, for some, it sends them down a really dark path. But maybe for some of you, I mean, maybe the occult has never had any allure to it. I avoid it like the plague. When it came to scary movies as a kid, I was a wimp. Still don't watch them. But with this view of the world, maybe being the boss of your own life and getting to make all your decisions, that probably sounds pretty great, right? This is a tendency we all have. We, we want to be the boss of our own lives. We want it to be focused around us. We want to be the foundation for our lives. But my record of being in charge, it's not so great. The lowest common denominator in all of my bad decisions was me, and I bet it's the same for you. Maybe, maybe you feel like I do, that we're really not qualified to be the foundation for our lives. So then what is, what is the best foundation for our lives? Well, that's foundation number two that we're looking at. This is God and his word. Jesus taught about this foundation in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What Jesus is saying here is that the foundation for a resilient, wise life is God and his word, the Bible. So what is the Bible? Simply, it's a collection of books inspired by God. It's a collection of 66 books written by multiple authors over a period of 1,500 years with one cohesive story. It has two testaments. A testament, it just means like an agreement or a covenant. That's typically between two parties. And so what that's saying is that the Bible is a record of, of God's relationship with us, with people. And it's broken into two sections. The first section is the Old Testament, which is a record of God's involvement with people before Jesus. And the New Testament is a record of what happened during Jesus' time on earth and what happened after his resurrection. So that is what it is. It's important to understand that it is also inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
So this word inspired, some translations actually translate it, this is God breathed, because that word in Greek for inspired, it means breath. So it literally means God breathed it out. And what that means is that he's the originator of the Bible. He is the origin and the initiator of what's written. And being the origin doesn't mean that every word was dictated by God and the authors were somehow like divine note takers, you know? They weren't sitting in a cave writing down everything that the voice of God said to them. There were some times where God did speak directly to them and they wrote it down, but that's not the main way we say it was inspired. Actually, what I think is so amazing is that God's control over the flow of history is so great that he left the writer's personalities, their writing styles, and their life experiences intact and still used them to perfectly communicate what he wanted to communicate. I mean, that is a powerful God. That's amazing. And it's really important for us as Christ followers to be confident that the Bible comes from God and is trustworthy. This is an area for me that I've spent a lot of time researching and studying. I never have wanted to build my life on a lie, and so I want to be confident whenever I'm approaching God's word that it really is from him and it's trustworthy, especially in a time when so many people claim that the things that they're writing are from God. We can be confident that the Bible is inspired by God. If you have questions, I have a few resources for a closer look. We actually have a resource here today. It's called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. In the the cubes on your way out, we have these books around. If you have questions about this, I would get that book. That's a great starting point. It frames the conversation. And then there's also a longer book that Josh McDowell wrote called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's really helpful. So much has been done on this topic. It's called Textual Criticism, and it helps us understand, like, that we, like the Bible is true, that we ha- what we have today is, are the words that were originally given to us by God. And we should be confident that the Bible is trustworthy because of what it claims. The Bible is the authority in our lives. If the Bible is filled with God's words, then we should definitely not ignore them, right? Because it's inspired, it has authority in our lives. It becomes the guide for our lives and how to live. It's the foundation for our relationship with God. It's where we find out who he is and what he's done. Importantly, it also changes the ideas about life and how to live it. Last week, I mentioned that one of the things God changed for me very early on in my relationship with him was my foul language. But it wasn't just cussing. I don't actually still know what we call it anymore. Is it swearing? I don't know. What I had was a total word problem, and what I needed was a whole mouth makeover. I was a smart aleck, a serial one-upper, a class clown, a word vomiter, and a self-promoter. I was that guy, you know. So when I started to take my walk with God seriously, this is something that became pretty clear to me that I needed to change. God was really helpful, but it wasn't a quick change. It wasn't something that I noticed immediately. I was like, yes, I need to change this. It took me a while to realize it. And actually, one of the things that God did was he, he put me around some serious Christians who took their walk with God really seriously. He had already changed this about them, and then I got to spend time with them. And it took me a while to realize the difference, but I remember the moment where something just, it, it clicked. I'd been hanging out with them for a while, and on the weekends, we would regularly go to the gym at the university we went to, and we would play pickup basketball. And my experience was that when tempers got hot, language got bad, right? People started being rude. They'd, they'd taunt their own team. They'd say terrible things for the sake of a game that didn't matter. It was pick up basketball. So, <laughs> but, you know, we were into it. And 
after a while, I realized, oh, the guys on my team that I'm hanging out with, there's something different going on here. As they played, this was weird to me, they actually encouraged their own team. I was like, okay, okay, maybe they're just great teammates, right? Like maybe they played some type of organized sport and they were taught that that's helpful. But then they complimented the guys on the other team when they did well. And I was like, what? That guy just made a three-pointer like in your face. And they were like, good shot, man. I was like, what? It's happening here. And then I realized like, oh man, this is different. And then it was really refreshing. I enjoyed spending time with these guys, and they weren't damaging relationships. They were actually building up people as they played basketball, as they were being competitive. And then as I read the Bible for myself, I realized God really has a lot to say about how we use our tongues, how we use our words, and that we should control them. But then he also talks about how difficult that is without his help. There's a verse that continues to challenge me to this day. It's Ephesians 4.29. I want to share it with you. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's not just saying, stop saying bad words, but start saying things that are helpful. The words coming out of your mouth, they they shouldn't be unwholesome, but they actually go one step further, and they should be beneficial. I was like, oh, that's why they're encouraging the other team. They care more about the person than the points, right? That was challenging to me. This has become a major area of focus in my life, and it still is. I've been looking at this with God's help for years, and it's still something that I'm focused on today. God's ideas about our words, it changed how I live every single day. So am I saying, just read a book and change your life? Well, yes and no. I mean, there are secular Bible scholars still today. They read the Bible for information But again, in Matthew 7, 24, Jesus gives us the key to life change and building a firm foundation. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I mean, first, you have to be exposed to what the Bible says. You have to hear it. Put yourself into a place where you can regularly intake God's words. And then, of course, you don't just hear it. You accept the message and trust that God's ways are right. You actually approach God's words with a desire to obey, to do something with what you hear. The goal isn't just to hear it and move on with life. It's, it's then to put it into practice. Take the time to examine your life and the ideas you have about life, and then you put those up against what God says, and you ask, God, do I, do I see this the right way? What do you want me to do about it, God? I am very confident that if you, if you ask God, to give you some areas in your life that that don't line up with what he says, that he will be very clear and he will help you make next steps in your walk with him. Because Jesus is claiming that his words are what you can build a life on. Everyday decisions, the big and the small. This is something that we work on with students all the time in the student ministry. I really want to help them learn to see that God is real and the Bible is true and it is a foundation that they can build their lives on, that, that God loves them and wants to help them navigate life. And I want to give them opportunities to not just hear about it, but put it into practice as they're involved in the ministry. We work on this stuff all the time. As we expose ourselves to to God's word and humble ourselves and actually do what he says, that's how we begin to build this firm foundation. Along the way, he'll show us what's right and what's wrong and help us grow to make wise choices and God-honoring decisions in the future. And I'm convinced that we, we must take this seriously because of something Jesus also said. 
that our foundations will be tested. We read earlier the great foundation tester, its pressure. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. We, we see that that is repeated for both foundations, the firm foundation and the one that caused a great crash. Many of us, I think we've experienced the, the pounding storms of life. You know, those things where you're just, you're battening down the hatches and you're just trying to survive through life. We've experienced those. The difficult parts of life are to test if your spiritual life is up to code. The storms affect everyone. Everyone gets hit with the storms. One of the things that I've seen in the students that I've worked with and that really concerns me for the future is that either through life stage or circumstances, many have been sheltered from difficulty. For this generation, it will be a long time before their foundations are tested and their me-center foundation is shown to be inadequate. And the farther on in life that that goes, the more catastrophic that could be for a generation. Gen Z is young. They haven't lived enough to experience the damage that type of foundation can really do in a life. But if we're honest, it's not just that generation that's in danger. We have to ask ourselves, how much of of this me-centered view of the world has affected how we live? When push comes to shove, how many of our ideas are based on God's word? That's a significant question. When it comes to dating, marriage, parenting, work life, retirement, who we're supposed to marry, what we're supposed to do with our lives, what we should live for, and how we should use our time. How many of those ideas come from God's word? How many do we filter through the truth that comes from him? Because it turns out that none of our self-made foundations will withstand the difficulty that life will bring. Something's got to give, and it's not God's word. Our foundations will crumble and fall with a great crash if we're building them on the foundation of ourselves. So in the face of this, I want to challenge you to be missionaries, not the kind that have to get on a boat or a plane, but be a cultural missionary. The cultural divide that's forming between the generations, it offers us opportunities to be missionaries in our own communities with people that we've already met. You don't have to be in Gen Z to live a me-centered life, to build on the wrong foundation. Each one of us has people we know that are all around us that are building their lives on the wrong foundation. I want to close with a few remarks to some specific groups of people. For the parents in the room, a large percentage of young people still say that their parents are their role models. So I want to encourage you to check your life's foundations. Young people need to see what building a life on the foundation of God's word actually looks like so they could put that into practice in their own life. They need a place where they can see and experience the blessing that comes from walking with God. And they need to see parents who choose faith in the middle of difficulty that, that their, their life's foundations are tested and proved to be on a firm foundation. The student ministry leaders and I, we get to see the students for two, maybe three hours a week. So for parents, your role is so vital. It's a make it or break it type of role for people and their, their relationship with God. I've seen students with parents that aren't really involved. They, they struggle to get traction with their walk with God because it doesn't make it on the family's calendar for them to be here. Other things get in the way. Since it's not a priority in the home, students really struggle when they do show up every few months because they don't have relationships and they can't get traction. I really do believe students grow where they're planted. And I've seen students who have parents who are really involved, and their students just get it. The things that we talk about on Sundays and Wednesdays, they're, 
they're reinforced at home. The family values the walk with God. It makes it on their family's calendar so they see it happen in their real life. I think parents are such a big deal. I want to encourage you to check your life's foundations. For empty nesters or grandparents, young people need advocates and role models. I want to encourage you to look for ways to be a part of building the future's foundation on God's word. And one of the most significant things that you can do if you're not in Gen Z is to pray for leaders to rise up from the generation and lead many back to God. Prayer is so foundational in what we do. We want to see people rise up from Gen Z and future generations and take the message of the gospel, like Sundar Singh did, to their own people. And Gen Z, I'm talking to you. Studies show that 4% of your generation have a biblical worldview. 4%. Your friends and your peers, they don't know how weak their foundation is, and they don't see just the spiritual devastation that they're heading towards. They really don't. They desperately need serious Christian friends that have the courage to live out their faith in real life, in front of them. So I want to challenge you, Gen Z, to be the leaders that we're all praying for. Those of you who choose to be a part of the church, use this time to learn how to build a solid foundation on God and his words, to catch a vision for your life that takes the message of the gospel to your friends, to the people in your life. The rest of us, honestly, we're outsiders. We don't have the same position as you in the generation. You have a unique position with your generation to make a world of difference. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we can know you, that we can know you in your faithfulness. God, I pray you'd help each one of us to really check our ideas with you and your word. God, that we would learn to build a strong foundation on you and your word. Like we sung earlier, that we would build our lives on you, and that would cause us to, to go to people in our generation, in our relationship, in our spheres of influence, and love them, talk to them about who you are, God, that we would have the, the courage to be serious Christians and live out our faith in front of people. God, each one of us has a next step this week to take. I pray you'd make it really clear to each one of us what we need to do, how we need to apply what we've just heard from your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.